Blog Talk Radio.
get one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So let's get started with the party by bringing our play the analyst panels for the day. We first will bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Gamata Mishoki. Coming with African awareness, and my thing is, <clears throat> it's always been about institution building. In order to understand the necessity of institution building, I want to give you, a, if you indulge me, give you a quick history lesson in terms of the business roundtable. I think this is important that people understand, you know, the kind of maneuvering or that the wealthy employ, the looting class employ in terms of keeping us confused as to what's really going on in society. But in any event, back in 1972, the business roundtable was established. This organization consisted of 200 CEO executives, the largest corporations in America. The aim of the organization was to excuse me, innovate policy that would enhance corporate profit. However, in order to achieve that profitability, the issue of Africa exportation and modernization had to be addressed. Addressing the African question was important because the elimination of African people from the labor market laid bare the undemocratic nature of capitalism and the objective reality of why so many could not secure a job despite record profits by corporations. The organization, with the approval of Richard Nixon, decided propaganda could be used in creating a narrative corporation serving interests of all citizens. Working with the media, the BRT, the <coughs> excuse me, the Business Roundtable, highlighted stories in which they elevated the status of some African professionals. Given their perception, corporate America's policies, in fact, empowered the African masses by creating job opportunities for the most oppressed. For this strategy to succeed, however, it had to convince middle-class Africans that unemployment was a result of personal shortcomings that all who wanted it could find work. This strategy of class <clears throat> stratification in the African Union was very successful as more middle-income Africans abandoned the struggle for social justice and pursued the good life portrayed by media on a daily basis. In addition to deceiving the African middle class, the strategy was very effective in fomenting racial strife. <clears throat> Assumptions among many white liberals were Africans were benefiting at their expense, and as a consequence, splintered the movement for social change along ethnic lines. Now here we are in 2019, and the BRT, the Business Roundtable, is back at it again. Like yesteryear, they are vowing to make capitalism more compassionate, more responsive to the needs of humanity. It is my hope, Brother Africa, that we don't be tricked a second time with this political maneuvering. Without intervention, excuse me, without institutions to provide clarity, odds are the myriad of more effective propaganda technologies may take hold, increasing our vulnerabilities. So we must have institutions to clarify for people exactly you <clears throat> these what we're hearing on television, how it impacts our lives, and how we how we can get around these kind of strategies they utilize in terms of ensuring our continued oppression. So we have to have institutions to do that because without the institutions, I'm very concerned in terms of the potential um, uh, for the elite uh, to utilize the technology in a way in which so so bamboozle people that we talk about a movement almost being impossible to achieve. So institutions are extremely important, and I always encourage people to get on the business of building institutions. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we bring in Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa, and welcome uh, to revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and listening audience. 
My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objectivist Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And Father Brother Anthony, we now we bring in Brother Zimbabwe. Brother Zimbabwe, welcome to Africa on the Move. While we wait for Brother Zimbabwe, let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism since I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Al, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And do we have Jabari? Are you there, Jabari? I guess we lost Jabari for the present time, but we're going to move forward. Um, let's talk about what's going on in your world and community. Let's start out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, several things. Um, recently, um, China... Uh, had decided to retaliate against uh, U.S. policy by uh, slapping uh, tariffs on uh, U.S. goods from the U.S. And so so there's an escalating trade war uh, going on, and, uh, you know, and and that means it's going to be more, uh, you know, difficult uh, you know, for U.S. work, uh, uh, you know, harder for U.S. workers because it's going to be more difficult for corporations to, uh, you know, to sell uh, some of their goods to China. Also, uh, the wildfires that have been hitting the Amazon region of Brazil have have spread uh, to Bolivia. Now Bolivia, in contrast to the to the Brazilian government, uh, took action to to try to put out the fires that were a, a, a affecting the Amazon region in in in, in Bolivia by uh, using uh, a, a 747 uh, to uh, to drop thousands of gallons of water on the wildfires that were spreading into Bolivia. And uh, in the contrast to with Brazil, Brazil, uh, you know, has not taken any action uh, to stop the wildfires from spreading until international pressure pressure uh, forced Bolsonaro's action uh, to uh, to address the issue. So uh, those are some of the things going on, you know, in my in my world right now. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Let's go to Brother Haki. What's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, a couple of things. First, I want to mention in solidarity to the Cuba, and this trip takes place October 31st, November 6th. More information, we actually give us a call at 804-549-7492 or area code 202 714 
1-800-646-9435, or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. Of course, we encourage people to come to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand the marvels uh, of, of Cuban society and why we could greatly um, benefit from exposure to Cuban understanding, you know, uh, the philosophy of the institutions uh, in terms of how they impact society. Now, the second thing, Brother Africa, is that this goes back, you know, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of incidents involving the police in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, despite the fact that they got an African woman who's the chief of the police department, these problems continue to persist with respect to the police in the African community. Now, back in December 2018, a woman by the name of Erica Reynolds, Erica Reynolds, was pulled over on suspicion of narcotics purchase. She was searched along with her vehicle, and nothing was found. Now, two male officers summoned a female officer to perform a cavity search on Ms. Reynolds. As a result of this cavity search, which was conducted in the precinct, Ms. Reynolds experienced some turning and had to be taken to the hospital. Now, how is the police feeling bold enough without a court warrant to conduct such a search? How is it that procedures requiring medical expertise uh, could be disregarded where police become physicians? Would this have happened to a white woman in America? Probably not. So what does this say about the value of African life and human decency in America? If the humanity of the people is not respected, it's safe to say that their very existence is precarious. And if their position is precarious, can we seriously expect those who create the instability in the African community to come to the aid of African people? So clearly we got some questions to ask ourselves because the situation is becoming horrendous. Uh, there's no sense that uh, anything will get better. In fact, we can we can extrapolate that the situation has become immensely more more worse. So clearly we got to work out for us, but it starts with understanding the nature of the system. And we can no longer, we certainly can ill afford this notion in terms of um, believing uh, those things pertaining to the system that are not, not true. So we have to understand clearly how the system works and what it means for our lives, particularly when we talk about longevity. Okay, thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, um, I think it's correct um, what Truthout is saying. Um, the Amazon is dying, and Bolsonaro is standing in the flames. I think that's, that about sums it up. I mean, it, um, he wants development in the Amazon, and I think, you know, he. he he has no. He's he's not committed to uh, the environment, and uh, and that's just the case. Um, also, Trump um, reinstating. He wants to reinstate the indefinite uh, family detention, so that um, they can hold children and immigrants uh, longer than 21 days, I believe it is, 20 days, and. Um, why they're waiting a, 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 a judge, an immigration judge, um, and this is you know puts a lot of hardship on people. And uh, then there's uh, Trump talking about buying Greenland and, and uh, the diplomatic fallout that that has come about this week. Uh, it just shows that he has a settler colonial. A mercenary mentality, and uh, he he thinks uh, money can do anything. 
But didn't they, they? I think it was Lenin said that uh, the capitalists will sell you the rope to hang them with, and so that's that's well says it all. Okay, thank you. And you add your last point, brother brother Moses. You see, they will sell you guns and bullets that may end up turning around shooting them, but they don't care because it's all about making money. They don't be thinking. But anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're gonna do is we're gonna. Pause for this cause. When we come back, we can continue to have a discussion under this theme, what's going on in your world and the community. You listen to Africa on the Move. If you have any questions, comments, feel free to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and community. Nine But right now, let's pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. Welcome you back to Africa on the Move. 
and don't you be a buffalo soldier. You remember you were stolen from Africa and brought to the Americas. You were fighting upon arrival, and you are still today fighting for your survival. 400 years later, you are doing the same thing that you are doing when you first came here. So Africans and Africa must be free, and that's what we're going to work towards. Oh, Africa on the move. Brother Haki, I'd like for you to uh, uh, extrapolate a little bit more on this, this, this impact of how the BRT came up with a method to make African people accept the whole idea that we as a people are lazy and wasn't taking advantage of opportunities only for the end game of finding more ways to make more money off of African people by having less of them in the market. What other avenues that you know that they may have created a plan to the same game? Because I often wonder about what's going on today around this celebration. It's 400 years of the first enslavement of Africans. How they get us to call some as such a celebration. It seems like we all bound into, the, into this game of, of, of accepting our oppression and thinking something good. So, um, what do you see down the pipeline of other games that have been played to justify why we continue to suffer and, and, and continue to be exploited? And we, and we say to ourselves, you know, because we're not trying hard enough or we're not voting enough. But every time when the Democratic Party uses election, they always come up with the one analysis, and the analysis is enough Africans didn't vote for them. So what you make of this, Hacky? How can we avoid these games being played? Yeah, well, you know, you know, Brother Africa. <clears throat> the more, the more, the more things change, the more meaning things. Uh, we talked historically. We talked about the strategies they utilize in terms of deceiving people, uh, and those strategies, by and large, have been very successful. Uh, one of the things is that, from, from the start with, I think we have to acknowledge there's a real deficit of understanding when it comes to the African community. Uh, two of us, uh, unfortunately, don't have any idea in terms of our history. We know very little about our history. To the extent that we understand history, is the history that we're taught, you know, you know, by the West, by the Western leaders. And so, therefore, of course, the version of their history that they give is often misleading and erroneous. But nonetheless, if you don't have any means to contrast what you're being taught, then you tend to embrace the, the fallacy in terms of the history. So, I think fundamentally, one of the big problems for our people is that we don't understand our history. And what we have to do is important we understand that. But there is a bit of a paradox because one of the things is that to the extent that one hates oneself, and when you ask them to learn about someone who's quote-unquote African, and they're not likely to embrace such an idea because in their mind, in their subconscious, there's this notion that, in fact, that to be African person is to be inferior, and so therefore there's really nothing to, to discover. <clears throat> so we have to overcome that fundamental uh, mindset that in the 21st century still exists in many of our people. Also, I think we can't underscore enough in terms of how the system highlights those individuals' uh, in the African community who have this quote-unquote conservative point of view. And so, therefore, those people who espouse very ridiculous kinds of concepts, ridiculous kinds of ideas, gets, you know, gets a, a visibility. So the, the, the ruling class does that intentionally because they want to form in as much confusion as they possibly can by putting these people in front of the cameras and on television and radio. Of course, they know what these black conservatives are saying is disingenuous, but they understand, but it does have an impact on other Africans who are confused who don't understand the nature of what's happening in society, 
who then therefore gravitate toward these black conservatives say, even though what they're saying is largely erroneous. Also, I, I think, but you know, Brother Africa, you know, you know, when we talk about the role of <clears throat> propaganda per se, I mean, you 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 got to give it to to the West in terms of when you look at things, just in terms of the kind of films that get financed, or uh, the kind of programs that come on television. When you look at them, all of these programs have a specific, specific slant, and I'm often um, fascinated by when, particularly when you look at you know uh, TV shows. You know, African people always tend to be police officers, intelligence officers, or or CIA officers. So I find it very, very interesting that even those institutions seem to be very discriminatory toward African people, that it could continue to promote African people as being a a, 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 a sufficient part of a, a sufficient part, you know, of these of these of these institutions. So I find that very ironic, but nonetheless. They understand that those programs do impact on the way people think. I think one of the things with Africa, when we get right down to it, in terms of how the system functions, most people don't understand how capitalism functions. One of the things you might ask most people, you know, why is it, why is it that people can't find jobs? Many people actually tell you, but people don't want to work. If they really want to work, they can find a job. And they really, they genuinely believe that. But when you ask them, so listen, how much do you know about the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill? Back in the 60s, do you know anything about that that act? Uh, they don't know anything about that. Let me try to explain to them that what, what happened was that bill was all about mandating that everyone who wanted a job could actually get a job. Well, it was it was it was a socialism to an extreme because what happens is that it ensured that everyone could get a job who wanted to work. But those people in positions of power were adamantly opposed to it because what they heard was that. If you, in fact, give everyone a job, then what happens is that my profits, that you impact on my profits, you impact my bottom line, so therefore we must reject any notion that people have a fundamental right to work. As a matter of fact, one of the things that the more people unemployed, this means more profit for the, for the ruling class. And so this is why people can't find work. Superimposed upon that, Brother Africa, you've got a system in terms of deindustrialization that started in the 80s in which, you know, these capitalists, these same capitalists in pursuit of profit, took their all corporations, their business abroad to exploit labor abroad. And so now today they talk about the fact that China is their arch nemesis. Well, China's not an arch nemesis. You arbitrarily packed up and you took all the technology and your equipment and your factories and you took it to China to exploit the Chinese workers. Well, the Chinese leadership was smart enough to understand, you know, that in, in, in return for those markets of those, those you know, billions of Chinese consumers, that we demand that you know that, that this technology be shared, you know, and uh, that we that we utilize it, and that we can we can innovate that technology in terms of you know you providing for our society. So the Chinese weren't at, at problem weren't the problem. The problem was that the capitalists, in terms of their design, in terms of pursuit of profit, and so therefore the Chinese leadership was smart enough to understand that in return for all of this business that you're going to make in China, you know what, we can use we can utilize the technology for our own growth. And as a consequence, China's a major economic power in the world. So nothing they can do right now, despite uh, Trump's attempts, can undermine China's growth. China is heavily um, uh, um, uh, situated in the world economy. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a basic part of the world economy, and nothing the U.S. do is going to change that one iota. Superimposed upon the fact that increasingly more and more people, countries around the world, begin to understand that this whole this whole this whole uh, uh, capitalist mindset of the United States is in decline, 
and they understand that the planet, you know what I'm saying, humanity is in, is in jeopardy if, in fact, the system persists. And so a lot of people are turning their back on this capitalist form of government. Even England, uh, the, uh, the current uh, Bank of England head, um, um, Mark Carney, even he acknowledges that, uh, that the U.S. government is, is unsustainable, that its economic system can't last, that it's, it's in decline, that it's on, the real, it's on the way out. Even he acknowledges that. And so he's even advocating for a world in which, a multipolar world in which people can actually have real trade, in which governments can invest in our people, in which governments can ensure they employ their people, governments can create a situation in which they protect the, the, the ecology of the, of the planet, uh, and, and, and so forth and so on. So clearly, you know, all of us sort of just sort of underscore the need in terms of why it's so important to, 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 to understand precisely what it is that we're talking about when we start critiquing American society. But to the extent that African people don't understand what's going on, they have to get involved. They have to put the pressure on themselves to force themselves or compel themselves to understand precisely what's going on. Because if they don't do that, one thing is clear. This is one of the most most uh, intricate, one of the most complex uh, propaganda machines in the, con- in the world. And so, therefore, clearly, uh, their ability to deceive people is extraordinary. As a matter of fact, now that they're talking about, in fact, that the um, – that the um, the, um, the, um, the the federal uh, institution that oversees the uh, oversees uh, uh, the uh, communications, the internet specifically, uh, the FEC. Now they're talking about the fact that um, that they're going to determine, you know, what can be said, what can't be said on the internet. So your ability in terms of freely express ideas is going to be somewhat in jeopardy because those positions of power understand that truth, that people are objectively understanding what's going on is a very powerful enemy. And so, therefore, they, in their interest, they have to make sure they make, create a scenario which uh, access to information is almost impossible. So, clearly, we got a lot of work to do in terms of that community. So, and without that understanding of the society in which we live in, then that's always possible for us to move forward. So, we understand the role of propaganda and all that it entails. You know, Brother Anthony, let's continue down the same role in terms of um, creating perceptions of or creating conditions where African people will be continue to be exploited and controlled. You know, historically, Brother Anthony, there was a school of thought which stated that the more education our people receive, the closer we get to our liberation and freedom and the better we'll be off. But we also know that education is like everything else. It can be used as a tool to liberate you or to oppress you. Now, looking at our realities since we've been here, seems like the more education we have acquired, it has created a scenario where economically the further we got behind. How do you explain the role of education and how it has been used as a tool to continue to support our people, given the fact we have more people who may have had access to the European educational institutions. What's your take on that, Brother Anthony? Uh, certainly. Uh, the problem is, as uh, Brother Haki alluded to, our historical memories are very short. And that is not an accident. That is by design. And the problem is uh, is uh, not education in general, but the form that the education comes in. 
the essence of it is that we're that is that we're not being really being educated. We're being indoctrinated to work against our interests. And even though even though the literacy among Africans is probably higher in the U.S. than at any point in history, we are still disorganized. We're still marginalized. And we have the same, um, you, you know, relationship, uh, uh, you know, as far as balance of economic power to the, Euro, uh, to, the uh, to the economy of the Europeans that we had during the 1860s. And that is because, and part of that is projects like, you know, the 1619 Project, which actually starts our history from the time we were enslaved, instead of from when uh, uh, where, where our history really starts, which is in Africa, and uh, and uh, and and it start it starts from our, you know, from the human trafficking of Africans, rather than giving a, a more complete view of African history, like from where we started. And uh, and therefore we have a very skewed understanding of what uh, uh, of what our role is in society historically, and uh, and also uh, the educational system has been used to create uh, an anti-people sector in our community. As it's been used to create a bourgeois and petty bourgeois element, basically. That works against our interests, and that is because the education of Africans, for the most part, is controlled by Europeans, not by African people and in the interests of African people. And that's true even at the HBCUs, unfortunately. And uh, this is uh, part of the, uh, the dilemma we face and uh and uh we and uh we've been driven by propaganda to seek integration oh uh before we ourselves are organized uh uh you know to work in our interests that's why we get pushed in and out of uh you know major organizations so easily because we are disorganized as a people and uh and in order and, and uh we've been taught to uh, uh to to uh, uh you know to seek inclusion or, or or participation rather than seeking power and uh, and there's a, and there's a big difference between uh participation in uh you know your own exploitation and actually having power to control your life and uh, that's the essence of what, what black power was about. And it finds its highest organizational expression in pan-Africanism. And that, and until Africa's liberated and unified, Africans throughout the continent and the diaspora will continue to be oppressed and exploited. And, uh, and, it, and it becomes... Uh, a, a major part of our work for those who understand us to teach it to the masses of our people. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, 
one of the things that's going on in our world and the community is this past week and a half, half we have had a a large amount of youth making declarations to do mass shootings. Um, what do you think that is all about, Brother Moses? How do you deal with such a phenomenon? What's behind all of this? From your perspective, uh, this is a social disease. You know, we have to see it uh, for what it is. It's a social disease, and you know, this this is you know, uh, um, the society breeds 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 this kind of uh, individualism, wildcat thinking, and uh, and uh, these young people get mesmerized by TV and video games and whatever. Uh, I don't know uh, a lack of teaching of, of the history of, of of our people and of people in general and their history. Uh, uh, it's, 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 you know, people are alienated. The, the capitalism breeds alienation. And uh, this, this is symptomatic of that alienation the proof that there is alienation. And uh, we need we need uh, 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 a different, we need free health care, free education, a different social order that's kind of communal and, and uh, concerned about each individual. Uh, it's, it's, it's a it's an alienation problem. Thank you. Brother Africa. Yes, clear, Brother Africa. Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, uh, correction, uh, I meant to say FCC. I think I said FEC. It's FCC uh, in terms of overseeing the, the Internet. So let me get correction. Make sure, you know, cause I thought I'd say I'm thinking FCC. I'm saying FEC. Anyway, uh, the question around, you know, 1619 Project, uh, you know, what is important, Brother Africa, is that, you know, this this, this 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 notion of race has a lot of currency, you know, in the Western world. In fact, as long as we continue to believe in terms of this concept of race, then it continues to divide people around some nefarious term in terms of race. Uh, to the extent that we understand that race is a political construct, it doesn't really exist. It's something that those in the West in the 14th century uh, created for the sole purpose of justifying the exploitation of people who quote unquote who perceive as different. Uh, but what is interesting, though, in the book of uh, G.W. Noble's Historians Against History, what is interesting is that when Western leaders got together to essentially write Africa out of world history, they understand they understood that in order for them to achieve, uh, you know, uh, uh, average at a global scale, then they had to certainly um, undermine the humanity of African people. That was key to them. Because one of the things we understood that a lot of the uh, earlier capitalists understood the wealth of Africa, not just in terms of mineral wealth, but in terms of the intellect, in terms of the math, the science, uh, the engineering, uh, libraries, all those things out of Africa. They knew all of that stuff. But what happened was that they made a decision they would write all of that stuff out of history. And as a consequence today, most Africans don't realize their history. They, they see their history as term being connected to, um, or they conflate their history, you know, to, to Western history. And that is a fundamental error. So we have to understand the history. But in understanding the history of Africa, what, what happens is that this whole nefarious notion in terms of racism, the whole of race, becomes esoteric. It becomes obsolete. It becomes passe. 
people began to understand that they're being duped. That this whole notion in terms of race was a trick. It was a strategy. It was a uh, it was a scheme in terms of pitting one people against another for the sole purpose of a small group of people to exploit both. So I, I think that the 1619 does nothing but in terms of reinforcing that notion that a history or, or the viability of history started, you know, when we when we were brought to the shores of North America. As opposed to understanding that the history of African people is the history of, of the world. And so, therefore, to understand that then we have a proper understanding in terms of who we are as a people and the accomplishments that we're, possible, that we can, that we're capable of making. Even the context in terms of you talk about the scientific and business or educational uh, gifts that we gave to America and to Europe, uh, that aside, if we understood our history, then we understand that we can build a society. We can build a society, you know, uh, um, you know, um, you know, if all of us put our mind to it, because we have we have the capabilities to do that. But first and foremost, we have to understand that we have the capabilities. As long as we buy into the Western concept in terms of history, then we continue to buy the notion that uh, that uh, we're not capable in terms of innovating or creating because this is something that's outside our purview as as a people. So I think uh, you know that is that is a much quintessential point uh, that we have to address. Uh, we have to begin to understand that our history didn't start in America; it precedes America by hundreds of thousands of years. And this is where we should start. This is where we have to make sure that our children understand precisely what our history are. So when they talk about the history, the children can run it off. Even in the context of history in America, if you want to talk about African scientists in America in terms of the creations, then the kids can run it off. But we have to have that kind of information, that kind of free flow of information uh, in the community to make sure that our kids get the message. Because without that, then this whole 1619 project has too much legitimacy in the mind of too many African people. You know, panelists, can I get all y'all to weigh in on this, this discussion? And we're talking about the games they plays to continue to exploit Africa and African people. There's a new game that's being played against African people where they're trying to make it look like progress, and a few people stand to benefit. But what it's doing is it's intensifying a capitalist class in Africa, and that is the coming of a new National Basketball Association, NBA, creating teams that will serve as a labor pool to draft players from Africa into the NBA. Now, they have invested so much money in 10 countries to create professional basketball teams. Now, some people think that's a good thing, a great thing. I don't see it as a great thing. I see it as another game or two of further penetration of colonizing and supporting African people. Because what you're going to do is create a small wealth of class of Africans who are privileged to play that sport of basketball, where at the same time, that's going to be most damages, you can get, it's the idea, the institution that you're setting up in terms of the whole issue of the domination of money, run for money, the domination of being power, control, have property, the domination of, um, you know, it's okay if you got money, you can do what you want to do. That's a good thing. I can see that bringing more harm to Africa, African people. And also, they're going to com- compete in terms of salary-wise of the Africans born on the continent but the African born in the United States as well in terms of who's going to get these limited 450 jobs to play in the NBA. 
your response to this this this, this new game that's being played of bringing professional basketball to Africa? Is that a good policy overall? No, I think what it's going to do. Yeah. Go ahead, somebody. Go ahead, Anthony. All right. I was going to say it's going to intensify uh, the class stratification in Africa. It's going to intensify the the, uh, the uh, class struggle even more by creating a, 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 an elite, and it's going to make it more difficult uh, for, uh, for for Africa to develop its own its own resources and capabilities in the area of basketball as well as other areas of life. And also, it's going to create, uh, uh, and it's, and it's going to add to the brain drain uh, that's currently going on right now, where uh, a lot of uh, the African intelligentsia, once they get their, uh, uh, you know, they go abroad to get their college degrees, a lot of them stay in those uh, those countries where they get their uh, their formal education. Uh, because of the drain of resources on Africa and because of neocolonialism, they have no intention of going back to try to help develop the resources and uh, labor skills uh, 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 of Africans. And uh, so this is, this is going to cause an intensification. And also, it, it also uh, adds to the profits of the NBA which is under uh, Zionist domination. So I'm I, so I'm concerned on that level as well. And uh, so I don't I, I don't th- I, I don't think overall it's a good thing. In the short run, it may benefit a few Africans, but overall it does nothing for the masses of uh, African workers, except further the exploitation. Africa, you know, it's amazing the hip, it's amazing the hypocrisy that this proclamation oozes. Because one thing we notice is very interesting. Because the NBA has a mostly Caucasian governing body, it's okay for them to dictate the terms which a league will operate in Africa. But if there was an, a diasporic African that was born in the U.S. and attempted to go play on his native African team for the country his family is from, that would be a big controversy. So it's amazing the rules can be – it's okay for those um, when they're Caucasian. They can write the rules, but if the Africans said, we want an all-African league under our control, then it would be a big uproar. And secondly, I'm going to say that it's very interesting. One of the key benefactors from this venture is that of Barack Hussein Obama, who we know was under his policy that there was an explosion of AFRICOM. So you got to ask the question, too, in regards to the Africans that were playing the league, politically, what kind of maneuvers would they um, be engaged in? What kind of decisions would they have to make, given that this is going to be one of the people that they're going to be answering to? And we know his dubious policy when it comes to Africa and people of color. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that of all of the, the the problems on the continent, that the best they can do is innovate uh, uh, basketball, you know, for the continent. And you know, it seems to me, you know, just on on a very pragmatic pragmatic le- pragmatic level, and one of the things it seems to me that African states should have said, "Go to hell," because it's insulting. Of all the problems you have on the continent, what you what you want to present basketball. As a, as a solution to the problems that Africa is confronted with. 
So I think it's, it's very, very insulting. But I think the bigger picture, <coughs> I think the bigger picture, not only that has to do in terms of, of class stratification in Africa, so you create a few millionaires, you know, just to highlight, you know, how good it is to be a millionaire. Of course, there's stuff in terms of the the, the, the infrastructure needs of Africa, but 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 certainly on, on uh, as far as the vision goes, it does goes a long way in terms of dividing, you know, the haves and the have-nots. So certainly those conditions of power in the West would love to see that they want to reinforce that kind of division in African society. But I think more importantly, I think that once you groom these African players to play basketball, then it's just a hop, skip, and jump from bringing them over here to the U.S. where you can you can supplant, you know. You know, Africans, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, and have, you know, chess, I mean, superior athletic you know, skills, you know, uh, from, you know, these African players on the continent, by, by the same token, paying them less money. So, so similar to what they did in baseball in terms of how they supplanted Africans, you know, and, 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 white, and white ball players, you know, with, with uh, people, you know, with, with, with Africans and, and from, from the Caribbean who will come play baseball, professional baseball at a high level, for less money. So I think there's an economic motive in terms of what they're really doing in terms of what's driving this whole notion in terms of creating basketball in Africa. But I certainly hope that the leadership in Africa will be asking such a question, what is the tangible benefit in having this fucking basketball in, in Africa? How is that going to benefit the African continent? How is that going to improve the infrastructure? How is that going to improve the schools? How is it going to get the needed technology into Africa that the continent needs? How is basketball going to do that? Basketball is not going to facilitate any of that when I owed it. So this notion that basketball is, is somehow a solution to Africa's problems, it's laughable in its face. Brother Moses, you would like to weigh in on this? Your thoughts on that? Well, I definitely don't think basketball is a solution to Africa's problems. Um, um, I'm, 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 I like basketball personally, uh, I grew up playing basketball, and uh, I, but I, I can see how how uh, world imperialism, you know, is. You have to take, you have to understand, you have to look at it for what it is, and uh, and there is a, a quote, globalization or whatever it is. Uh, capitalism is just spreading around the world. And that's the bottom line, and that's, that's the only way to look at it. Uh, but uh, uh, so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. You know, I just like one other fact. another point. Yes, good, Jabari. Something else we have to look at is how this is another use of the media to insult African people because when you think about in terms of what they're trying to perpetuate is very interesting. Yet again, because we have proven to have a certain level of athletic prowess, they're not trying to respect the numerous contributions we made to even establish civilization because that's where it began with us. But yet they focus on one of the more trivial aspects in terms of the things that we offer in terms of society. They don't look at the science, the medicine, the things that we do to help make society a better place both in antiquity and even in contemporary times, but yet you want to focus on something so trivial as the ability to um, perform at the highest athletic levels. I mean, what different is that from how they've used us in terms of entertainment as a way to keep us docile and keep us um, from truly 
utilizing our full mental capacity. It seems like to me this is one big distraction tactic. Well, real quickly, Brother Africa, real quickly, you know, um, but the thing is that, you know, I got a great deal of respect for uh, Professor Lumumba out of Kenya, uh, East Africa. And what he's been saying is sort of similar to what um, Janua Achebe out of Nigeria was talking about. That is that you have a rich and varied history and culture that existed for hundreds of thousands of years that was very successful in terms of eliminating all these problems that are so prolific you know, in the Western world. So why not go back and look at those things that you did in terms of, you know, creating a society evolving around those principles? And I think this notion that, and it was certainly one of the things that he talks about, the fact that unfortunately, you know, too many African leaders are educated to believe that this, that this, this Western mode of capitalism is, is the best you hope to achieve. And therefore, they're content to continue to try to innovate a system essentially which is incapable of innovation which means that you get to a certain point in terms of growth when it comes to capitalism, you can't grow any further. The only thing that really grows is, is um, a, a deficit between the have and the have not. But in terms of providing for the masses of folks, in terms of both materially, spiritually, and so forth, then capitalism is very, very uh, minimal in terms of its ability to actually provide those things that people really need in terms of thriving. So clearly, um, Professor Lamuma has a point. And, you know, he's been going around Africa talking to, you know, African military leaders and political leaders about in terms of taking a serious look in terms of what you can do in terms of trying to, you know, bring about a system which reflects, you know, the history of Africa in terms of, you know, you know uh, getting around all these problems that are so pervasive, you know, in Western society. So my hat's off to Dr. Um, Professor Lumumba in terms of, you know, his struggles. It's not easy. Because he's dealing with a lot of corruption on the continent, and uh, you know, but despite that, you know, he continues to persist. And so I'm hoping that there are more Professor Professor Lumumba's on the continent who are willing to speak truth to power and to get people to understand that there are many ways to look at, at look at look at the situation, and that just think that there's only one one way in terms of proceeding to address problems is 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 is, is, is naive. So my hats off to Dr. to Professor Lumumba in terms of the standard he's taking and trying to bring some consciousness or new consciousness, you know, to the continent. You know, when I forget, when there's another game you always have to be conscious of when you take any institution from a Western country and it goes into another country at but, their expense. But Africa? Yes, Yes, go ahead. We can't help but, as we have the discussion, we can't help but um, lift up the fact that something they have subconsciously been doing that a lot of attention has been drawn to is that a lot of the prime diasporic Africans that have been scouted there are roughly between 16 and 18 years of age. Not only are they um, getting invited straight to the NBA, but a lot of them are playing on some of the top college teams in the country. Cause I can say I know for certain the University of Kansas on average, at least every year, they find some type of um, African from the continent that they have on their team in a key role. So it's very interesting. They're doing other things as well to help indoctrinate and spread the message about how the so-called game of basketball is supposed to be some type of savior for them. Yeah, but I think the chosen horse, when we look at how basketball has been used as a tool to come to the continent, that we also need to be aware of. The NBA teams not coming to Africa just for basketball. These businessmen is coming to Africa to see other ways they can control, manipulate, and exhort 
um, large amounts of resources out of these countries. They also come in with their own intelligence network to have subsidized to carry out U.S. foreign policies. That's one of the dangers I think we need to be conscious of when we look at these kind of large institutions when they come into Africa or African countries in terms of what they do. They only come just for one single reason. They have more than reasons and objectives when they come to our country. Panelists, you have a response to that? I think that's well, true, Brother Africa, indeed, uh, because along with along with an NBA teams, for example, along with that comes uh, uh, comes uh, tourism, uh, the hotel, uh, uh, the hospitality industry, in order to cater to those tourists that come that will come to Africa to check out those games, for one. Another is, uh, you know, uh, 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 all these other corporations. So you're talking about a further uh, 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 penetration of U.S. capital into Africa with uh, with, with, with dire constant, uh, uh, consequences for the Af- for the masses of African workers. And uh, so, it, uh, so it is sort of a Trojan horse in a sense. That uh, and and the thing about the, the wealth generated what will will flow uh, right back to U.S. imperialism because at the end of the day, at the NBA is uh, is uh, is a product of U.S. capitalism. So it would only benefit a handful uh, uh, of Africans at best. And uh, as was pointed out earlier, really intensify the class stratification that already exists in Africa now. And I find it amazing they're constantly using African people for, as a means to end, and even around the question of ownership, they refuse to let any African to buy or own an NBA team. But yet, eighty-five percent of the people who work in that league are Africans. It's interesting how people need to wake up. Palace, before we make our transition to that thing, hell no, we are not down with that. There's one other issues I'd like to get y'all feedback on, and it was a movie, and they uh, can't think of the name of a brother named Brian. Brian, he was a football player, and you're forced to accuse of having a rape charge against him. And they talk about his life and how he went from being a promising football player in high school to end up going to jail, then getting out of jail, and finally making it to the NFL. Has anyone seen that particular movie? And y'all critique I, on that movie as it relates to the criminal justice system, which I thought were excellent, but it's not really talk about. There are a lot of lessons in that movie that I think African people, if they're going to go to a movie, that movie is what I've seen, brother Anthony. I saw the movie and uh, I agree with you, brother Africa. It it exposes, uh, it raises a lot of issues. One is how um, is how you know sometimes uh, women uh, can be as manipulative as men are in terms of um, you know us exploiting each other. For financial gain, 
and also and also the fact that uh that that the brother his name was Brian Banks I believe is Brian Banks Yeah Brian Banks exactly. He was rail he was railroaded uh you know into prison uh he did not have adequate legal representation um uh, uh you know which is why uh which is why he ended up in jail even though he did he he did not rape uh, uh, the uh, the the woman. Uh, you, you know, uh, you know, he did not commit that crime. He was accused stuff. Uh, you know, they uh, that that uh, that that they did go they did go to a secluded area in the school. This took place at the high school level, I should add. You know, uh, you know, while the brother was in high school, uh, you know, he was uh, he was messing around, uh, uh, you know, messing around with this girl. But the thing about it though. It never got to a point where where where, where there where, where there was any intercourse involved because he he hesitated and and backed out of it. But uh, she uh, she had, uh, the girl had claimed that she was raped by him, and there was no uh, you know thorough investigation into her charges, and uh, the criminal system didn't uh, justice system didn't care. And uh, you know, you, you know, was uh, and uh, you know, the brother ended up being railroaded into prison, and uh, got close to being raped, you know, while he was in prison, and uh, he ended up in solitary confinement for a while. And uh, at the time, California had this policy of indefinite parole and whatnot. I forget, I forget exactly how, how it worked. But he couldn't go near. Uh, he couldn't go 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 near uh, within two hundred yards of two thousand yards of a school. Some policy uh, to that effect. While it was on parole, yeah. so it jeopardized him getting employment. Yeah, one of the things also I think the movie brought out was the kind of implicit bias that exists in the mind of a lot of these attorneys who represent you know African people. Uh, this woman, even though she was paid, I mean, because Brian's mother sold the house uh, to pay the legal bills. So even though she was paid, she, did, she didn't do the work in terms of investigating the case. Uh, she was content to simply plead him out, you know, and uh, call it a day. Um, so for her, she maximized, you know, her, her profits, you know, by actually not doing the investigation. Because a simple, a simple investigation would reveal that what the young lady was alleging was simply impossible. And you brought it right by the after when you talk about the question in terms of uh um when you talk about in terms of um the DNA, uh clearly uh there was no there was no there was no penetration, there was no sperm, there was nothing to indicate that in fact that she was she was raped. So a simple a a, a, a simple a review of the information, uh it would have been quite clear, you know, that that a young brother was innocent. But the system really didn't care. And to, to make matters worse, one of the things we talk about on the appellate level when you try to bring some redress to being lawfully convicted is difficult in the system because what happens is that in the system, they want you in prison because you represent money for the corporations, so they want you there. So they got a system in place, a judicial system, to make sure that even though the evidence is very clear that you were railroaded, you can't use that evidence, you can't bring the evidence up. you got to find new and compelling information to justify appealing appealing a case. So that's strange. So you stop and think about it. If there's no DNA uh uh you know present, you know, in the young lady, if 
The physical layout of the building makes it impossible for him to actually rape the young lady. If these factors exist, the mere fact that you can't bring them to the appellate court raises real problem, real philosophical problems for me. Because one of the things I think that, you know, we, 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 you know, you got to think of think of it this way: it's not the defendant, you know, who who made the error. The error was on the attorney. Why should a defendant be penalized because he had a, a, an attorney who was lazy? Who was an ex, or, or somehow you know just didn't care? Why should the defendant? Why should the defendant suffer? It seems to me there's fundamental uh, um, vitriol toward people you know who are defendants in the system is very very clear in, the, in this movie, and so therefore the the, the the possible in terms of the system making money outweighed any struggle for truth. So it seems to me, right, in terms of just being able to appeal the situation, once you raise those two situations up in terms of appeal, it seems to me that as a, as a just society, as a just system, then you would immediately say, okay, look at, we're given this, 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 this guy's lawyer was incompetent, and so therefore given that, we can't victimize him, so let's appeal this thing and bring it back to the court to address a wrong. The system doesn't work that way. And this is what people have to understand. That fundamentally, it's all these systems function as, as 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 businesses. It's all about getting the bodies in there to do the work to make sure that these corporations, you know, can get their products out. And that's what it's all about. And that's what the movie sort of underscores. In which you're right. Increasingly, you know, I'm I'm hoping that more and more people actually go see that, see that, and have a discussion around the criminal justice system. Because unfortunately, we have a disproportionate number of African people who are currently in the criminal justice system who are there simply because they are poor. So clearly, uh, the criminal justice system is antagonistic toward the interest or antagonistic toward this whole concept of justice. How do y'all see the Project Innocent? How do y'all see their role in this whole overall scheme to thing, giving their criteria or how they went about choosing cases, who they will accept and will not accept? Because that brother was, basically he did most of all of the work himself. If if he didn't have the kind of initiative to drive, I mean, he would be still in prison. But in terms of just the concept in general, Project Innocent, how did y'all view that project in terms of how it was portrayed in the movie? It, well, it had I, its usefulness. I think it was somewhat how, but it really it it real they real they were really stretched as far as resources uh to really to 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 real to really tackle that kind of problem and i think that's why they were so selective about the cases they took uh because it it it, it you know is tremendously uh difficult uh the way the justice system is set up well in california anyway i don't know I'm not sure how it how it would be in other states, but you know to actually get something like that reversed. Yeah, and and I think. Go ahead. 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 Go an innocence project is locked in a system in which, unfortunately, you know, unless you're radical-minded, unless you're willing to, to buck the trend, 
it's very difficult in terms of, to bring, you know, uh, exposure to a lot of these cases. Because one of the things that they have a code of ethics in law enforcement. So, therefore, if you, if you buck too hard, if you shift the exposure system too much, they disqual you. So what can you do? If you, if you stand up and try to defend people based upon what you know to be moral and just, uh, you stand the possibility of losing your license. So the Innocent Project, I'm not free to simply make moves uh, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, contesting someone's, you know, someone's uh, conviction. I, I, I think that because we're talking about the system, I think first and foremost we have to understand fundamentally, you know, that, you know, it's going to take more than the Innocent Project in terms of bringing about a redress or, or a, a systematic change in terms of how the criminal justice system operates in this country. And it takes people, mass people, in terms of reasoning what the contradictions are when it comes to the criminal justice system and to expose the corruption in terms of the so implicit in terms of the criminal justice system. But back to the, but back to the uh, Innocence Project, uh, one of the things that you write, it wasn't for the fact that the brother <clears throat> was, was adamant you know, that he was, he, he, he was quite persistent in terms of trying to bring about you know, some type of redress to his case. It wasn't for that. It really wasn't a pain in the butt. He never would have, they never would have taken that case. And keep in mind that when, when you look at this, the judge's ruling in terms of that appeal, uh, one of the things that was interesting is that one of the things that normally don't happen, normally judges don't reverse themselves. This judge did. So I, I would be interested to know more about in terms of this judge's background, in terms of you know, what was it about him that he see a wrong was committed and, and he was willing you know, to go against his own decision. So I, so, so I think that to a large extent, you know, the commission project is good, but, but unless they can do more in terms of highlighting, you know, the injustices, the, the systematic corruption of the criminal justice system, uh, a lot of people won't be served you know, by the Innocence Project. But also, Brother Haki and Jabari and Moses, if y'all seen it, y'all can give your feedback on it. But also, Brother Haki, after I thought of interest in terms of, it says a lot about a system when you have a prosecutor who was exposed to the truth, and he still had a hard time coming around want to submit that this brother was innocent. I thought that was real ironic and interesting. And that's the reality, because most prosecutors, um, they refuse to want to, they refuse to not to want to look at the true facts as it relates to innocent people, because they have a record that they must protect. Yep, it's, a, it's an adversarial system. It's not about the truth. It's about winners and losers. And so if those prosecutors are to move up in that office, then they damn well better have a record of convicting, you know, you know, uh, 90 to 100% of the people that come before them. And so, therefore, one of the things is that when you stand up and you fight for truth, then what you're doing, as far as the court is concerned, you're not advocating for the state. Your job as a prosecutor is to put people in prison. Whether they're innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. Your job is to put them in prison. And so he felt that pressure. And so, therefore, this is why he made it so difficult, even though he knew in talking to the young girl that she was lying, and that the DNA, the DNA evidence uh, and the physical layout of the building suggests that he couldn't possibly have done, you know, what he was led to have done. He knew that, but he was thinking about in terms of, you know, his upper mobility in that system. And keep in mind, if you're not predisposed to have a certain mindset in terms of as a prosecutor, you know, you, you don't get that job anyway. They're looking for people who are highly suspicious of working class people. They're looking for people who see the bad in, in everybody. They're looking for people who are pro-system, those people who think that the system, uh, the needs of the system are more important than the needs, you know, of the people that have to interact with that system on a daily basis. So you've you got to keep in mind there's a certain personality quirk 
in which these officers in the DA are looking for. And so when you got these kind of people who have predisposed to be suspicious or predisposed to see the system as the savior, then you can understand why they'd be reticent to, to administer justice because they understand that to do so is to undermine their own possibility in terms of move, moving up in that organization. Hey, it definitely got to be very, got to be heartless because that was a cold-blooded, you know, cold-blooded prosecutor who didn't want to submit to the truth. But before we leave out here, could we just get a quick analysis on the beauty of his mother? One of the highlight things in the movie for me was the strength of his mother and what motherhood really entails. I think uh, when it was Sherry Shepard, she did an excellent job of being a mother and her mother was stick by their children. And I think she was, you know, she did an excellent job of being an excellent mother and the sacrifice she went through in terms of supporting him all the way through his trial and tribulation. tribulation. I thought that was an excellent job. Your response on the road of the mother? Haki, Anthony, anybody else? Yes, I thought she, I thought uh, I thought I thought uh, her her role in his life was critical. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because I think without that support that he, that he got from his mother, that gave him the strength to persevere. And uh, so I think you know I think it's important. When, you know, he he continued to believe in his innocence. He knew it, and and, and his mother supported him. And um, you know, and 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 I think, and I, and I think that helped him tremendously in terms of uh, providing a, a you know a space for him to live after he got out of prison. And um, you know, and and even when he, when it, when 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 everybody seemed to doubt him, she continued uh, to believe in his innocence. And so I think her support was invaluable. And I would add uh, something about the movie I noticed. It was not heavily promoted, at least, uh, you know, in my neck of the woods. And, um, you know, and it's interesting how a very, a lot of times in Hollywood, uh, they promote the hell out of movies they really want people to see. But movies that... uh, that 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 aren't necessarily bad movies, but they aren't. But there isn't a lot of interest on the part of uh, the ruling class. They tend not to promote that heavily, or they or, or they're for, or they're available only for limited release. Because one of the things when I saw the movie, there wasn't much of an audience for it, and I thought it was a very good movie in my opinion. But, uh, you know, something like, uh, you know, more glamorous movies like Hobbs and Shaw, you know, they'll promote the hell out of. But movies that uh, movies of this nature, they tend not to. And with the same case down here, Anthony, it was the best movie in, in the whole theater. But it was limited, and they didn't even have promotional, little, you know, they had promotional bill boxes for each movie player in the movie. They didn't have one yeah. in that particular yeah. movie theater. But it had many of the say other other movies, so you know. Um, like I said, I don't believe the hype. But one of the reasons why I brought this out today on the program, for those listening to the program, you owe it to yourself to go and check that movie out and support it. Brother Hackey, did you want to say something about the role of the mother before we go to that station yep, break yep. and get started on that thing? But go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah, real quickly, uh, you know, the mother pretty much epitomizes the strength of women and uh, the beauty of women in terms of the capacity to love against all odds. And so I think she, 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 that was manifested in that movie in terms of her treatment of her son. Uh, she knew how she greeted her son. She devised, she instilled in her son. Uh, she, you know, so, uh, but her strength, I mean, she could have simply succumbed, you know, to depression or, or any number of things. But the mere fact, you know, that the love in her heart, you know, sustained her. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, we are helped to her son. Speaks volumes in terms of, the strength of women, which is why women should be respected throughout the world in terms of their strengths. Uh, but that's all I want to say over that, in that, in that sense, Brother Africa. And on that note, we like to say to our sisters and our mothers, we too want to just encourage you and remind you no matter how difficult things are, we too want to keep your head up. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Yeah. 
opposition uh, to the uh, facial surveillance, um, you know, program that that the mayor and the uh, police chief wanted to implement in Detroit. And uh, and, uh, his concerns were uh, among, well, well, to start, uh, facial recognition is not particularly, is not accurate for, 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 for Africans. Uh, uh, another is that is that they would um, is that uh, that the that the devices would would be everywhere, and uh, you know on people's uh, you know on people's property, you know in their cars, etc. Wherever wherever they were at, and that it was prone you, you know to being misused. And uh, probably would be, you know, given, uh, you know, the overall political climate in the U.S. right now. But uh, but he was manhandled when he voiced those concerns. And uh, and that, uh, you know, he, he expressed opposition to it. And, uh, you know, and I think and I think this should be a, a, not only a, of, of concern to people living in Detroit, but in other parts of the U.S. where they where they might be, be consider, considering implementing simpler measures in the name of security and fighting crime. You know, Brother Haki, seems like the methodology of getting things passed for the interests of the elite and corporations here to just present a program. Yeah, one, two people said this is what we want. 
There will be no discussions. There will be no debates. And they realize a decision saying this is what we're going to do. This is what it seemed like took place in um, in Detroit. What has taken place in other city council meetings and stuff? Would you not agree that that's the fundamental contradiction that seemed to be where decisions were already made without the concerns and input of the people? And as a result, if you don't go along with the game, then the police force is there to back you up physically. Your response was hockey. Yeah, well, I, I think the, um, the political corruption is very much part of this, of this system. Uh, we certainly anticipate that. In this particular case, we have a situation where essentially with the mayor and the police chief uh, agreed, you know, that unilaterally this would be passed, and they discouraged any type of dissent by passing around a memorandum saying that, uh, you know, this is something that agreed upon and it's not open for discussion. So clearly the question becomes, you know, what is the benefit to them in terms of pushing that, that memorandum? Uh, clearly one can speculate that perhaps that uh, there's some payment that was made to these individuals um, in terms of their willingness you know, to push this uh, legislation through. Uh, but one of the things that's very, very interesting, though, I think, you know, you know when you start to think about the, the use of this racial, racial technology, and Brother Anthony alluded to this, but when you talk and think about the fact that bias is implicit in the algorithms they use to create this technology, uh, it's pretty much uh, um, uh, pretty biased when it comes to recognizing you know, different African faces. And so that alone is enough to make them think it's a winner, whole, whole, whole. That alone is enough to say, listen, we can't utilize this technology because simply because the potential of some innocent people to end up in jail because of the technology is simply too great, and so therefore we're not going to push this. Well, they did push it. So, you know, again, quite possibly there was some corruption involved. But normally, as you alluded to Brother Africa, you know, when you talk about these city councils around the country, normally when you have this kind of situation where you have this secret negotiation going on behind the scenes, normally somebody's getting paid off. But then again, when we start when we think about the political process in this country, it's always been about the money. It's not about principle. Uh, these people don't want these offices because they got principle. It's an opportunity to make some money. And so, therefore, I can see them being, uh, you know, in lockstep, in lockstep with those who are willing, you know, to push that, uh, push that programming, even though it's not in the best interest of the community. But one other thing, Brother Africa, I want to say, and I'm conclude with this. But this, this treatment of, in terms of the, uh, the commissioner, I mean, keep in mind that commissioner was voted in by the people. And so, therefore, in the clearest sense of the word, he represented the interests of the people. The mere fact that the mayor and the chief, uh, showed him no respect, speaks values in terms of how they perceive the community. So if the opposition is that the community don't count, then can you realistically expect them to enforce laws that are just, that are harsh, impartial and just, you know, toward the community? The answer is no. We can anticipate, you know, aside from the corruption, we can anticipate increasing the number of innocent people going to jail simply because those people, for whatever reason, uh, want to create the perception that they're quote unquote tough on crime. And why they're tough on crime? Someone 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 has paid them to be tough on crime. So clearly, you know, um this whole scenario in terms of having Detroit is pretty much indicative of what goes on through city councils throughout America. Brother Moses, your response to the article? Certainly it points out the uh the situation in the USA has not changed. Uh, they're still trying to keep black people in their in their place, quote unquote, and 
and uh, and they made up their mind and they're they're forcing their decisions down the throats of uh, the masses of people. Uh, a handful of people making the decision that affects so many, and uh, it's you know we're told to trust them. And the article points out, you know, after the, the way they abuse the the council person, how how can they, how can they expect us to trust them with with this, you know, more delicate and um, and um, a, a, a glaring situation uh, where they can um, th- their discretion can be so make such a big difference in the people's lives, and we're asked to trust them. Um, it's just, you know, like I said, they're still trying to keep black people in their place. And uh, uh, on a side note, um, I was glad that they came back uh, with a verdict in this case where the so-called stand your ground in Florida where this brother was shot to death uh, as he was backing away, backing up. Uh, and uh, the jury did convict that uh, Anglo of uh, – of, uh, Manslaughter. I'm not sure what what the exact verdict was, but they convicted them and gave them some time. Uh, that was a step forward. Um, um, again, it's just keeping black people in their place. Thank you. Okay, Brother Bobby, you got a response? What did you get from this article? Hmm. What I take from this article is that in the 1980s um, science fiction movie RoboCop, it mentioned that Detroit was a tale of two cities. There was the Detroit for the haves and Detroit for the have-nots. And in regards to this um, facial recognition surveillance, it's very interesting. They're using Detroit as a way of um, putting this kind of technology on display because one thing we have noticed is that based off of certain assumptions, perceptions, they have um, developed certain profiles of what they suppose to be called so-called black criminals. And because they have this kind of thing in um, in place, it's clearly that they're going to be going after certain segments of the society in Detroit. Not for everybody. As far as the suburbs go, they're not more like want to deal with this issue, but clearly to target the have-nots in that particular area. That's interesting. One of the things I was pointing out that ICE has already been using this technology, and one of the negative downside of it is that it seems to not only be entrapping so-called innocent people, but it's entrapping people who who, who have no idea that they are being monitored in 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 their own their own private homes and property. So. Um, so this is something that our people need to look at, and our people are rebelling against it. But again, it's a question of organization power. So before we go to our next article, any other final thoughts on this article, panelists? Yeah, let's go one at a time. Let's go to Anthony, Jabari, and Haki. Anthony first, Jabari, and then Haki. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I'm going to add something uh, about this article. It's not pointed out, but 
this to me this article points out the limitations of voting. Voting is the bare minimum you can do in order in order to seize political power. And uh and 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 I think a lot of and and a, a lot of us need to understand that that uh that that if you really want to uh want to take power you have to be uh be in an organization and and you have to go to public hearings uh demos uh, you know whatever hearings they have on this legislation that has an effect on your life uh let's see uh voting in and of itself is not enough and uh and that's something that is not conveyed you know to the masses of our people uh, you know enough okay Subari. I was also going to say this type of technology is extremely problematic because one issue they have not resolved, no matter what form it takes, is that oftentimes it falsely um, recognizes people and it will say that it's looking for one person, but the description will match that of somebody else. So you got to be careful. There's an extreme likelihood that um, innocent people will be facing um, accusations of infractions that they never even committed because of faulty recognition. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're behind a lawyer, and even behind a lawyer, a lot of times they see it's not going to get you home. They will tell you, take plea deals. Plea deals, this will be your best choice. And here we come, more people in the pipeline. What a system. Brother Haki, you finally thought on this article. Yeah, well, I think when we look at this kind of technology, it speaks to the kind of desperation of the ruling class in terms of ability to identify, quote-unquote, what they perceive as you know, adversaries in the society. Uh, when we talk about adversaries, it may be very, very clear. Essentially, what we're talking about, we're talking about those progressive forces that exist in the community. Uh, monitoring people who, quote-unquote, have a criminal uh, propensities are uh, not necessarily a concern of theirs. They are more concerned in terms of making sure they can spot potentially, uh, you know, uh, radical individuals who may pose a problem for the system. So I think that's their motivation in terms of why the system constantly pushes this technology. Uh, so I think that reason the fact that there's no discussion in terms of the abuse of the systems sort of underscores, you know, the kind of duplicity that exists in the minds of the ruling class in terms of their desire to make sure that they can identify, you know, who's who in terms of the radical community. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, irrespective of the technology in terms of spying on people, <laughs> people who are conscious, people who are committed in terms of change are not going to be deterred simply because you got the ability to follow them wherever they go. Uh, so, but I think the motivation for those in positions of control, I think it's important for them to have access to the technology. Because after all, they're convinced that because they understand that the system's in decline, they understand that the words that progressives speak has weight, and so therefore they must know who they are and what they're up to in terms of you know, their everyday endeavors. So clearly, you know, despite their uh, attempts in terms of you know um, uh, deterring people from speaking out, I don't think the technology is going to stop people who are adamant about speaking out simply because they really don't have a choice. Because given the overall economic conditions given the political reality in terms of what's happening in society, um, you know, you really don't have any choice. You've got to speak out because whether you do or not, 
one thing is clear, deterioration of the society and the, um, the destruction as a result of this deterioration is going to persist no matter what you do. So I don't think the technology is going to stop people, you know, from speaking out, at least those of us who are, who are committed, you know, to the truth, who are committed to justice. Brother Moses, you have a thought on this article? Well, um, I think, you know, the, again, it's, you know, these handful of people in power telling everybody else they don't need to know what's going on, basically, and that they should just trust them. And they want this uh, this power uh, to spy on people, uh, use this facial recognition for ICE, for for whatever, uh, and and um, protesters uh, uh, to recognize people, and they're using it all over the world. And so, uh, you know, we we have to struggle against this 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 handful of people that. Uh, and uh, get more people involved in 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 uh, in politics, I guess. Um, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Okay. On that note, we have our sister Celine from Cameroon has joined us. We're discussing that thing. Hell no, we are not going there with that. But with our sister Celine, we'll bring her in. A few minutes, we'd like to give her a chance to give us an update on what's going on in Cameroon or what's going on in her world. So we're gonna bring in our sister Celine. Sister Celine, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world, sister Celine? Oh, good day, good evening, uh, my brothers. Um, I'm happy to join you people of this evening. Oh, in my world, uh, the world is just there. We are still in our problems, and um, things are not easy. Oh, because of uh, the leaders of uh, the Amazonian were sentenced to life imprisonment. Things are getting worse. Um. Many people are traveling. There's a lot of migration. When you go to the parks, and yesterday I went to a park to pick some food. Uh, my sister sent to me. I wept. I wept there. When I saw the population that left the southwest region and they were coming to Yaoundé, you see beds, you see all type of Articles, house, utensils that women are carrying with their children, men are traveling, everybody is running away because there is a shutdown of uh, three weeks. It starts today to the 16th of September that nobody will travel, there will be no school. Um, everybody no car will move. So the Ambassador said there's no school. We thought we were really pleading that school should start in the Anglophone regions. But they have said that there's no school. So it's terrible. They are struggling to cross over to the La Republic area 
where they can send, people can struggle to look for schools to put their children. Oh, I wept, I wept, I wept yesterday, I wept. I thought when this thing is going to end, uh, this being the reason that I don't know what the lawyers did, I don't know how the case went, but we only heard over the radio and newspapers that have sentenced them for live imprisonment. So that's what is going on in Cameroon for now. We are just there. We don't know what we can do. We have really struggled that children should go back to school. So the ambassadors said they are going to fight. They are going to launch a real war against uh, the country. So we are like this. Earlier, we don't know what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You said earlier something about the leadership. Someone in a leadership position will lock up. Could you repeat that again? Uh, I said the the Amazonian leaders who were in the cell. Finally, they judged them and sent them to life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, that's yeah. why we got a sister on the phone. Anything you'd like to ask her for a few minutes before we get back on the subject, Paris? Let me let me let me ask Sister Samine, um is most of the violence coming from the, the Anglophone section of uh of uh Cameroon or or the uh, Francophone section of Cameroon? The migrating from the uh Anglophone section going to the Francophone section. Of the country. Who is, who is initiating the violence? I'm not clear. Who, who would you say the initiator? The Anglo or the French section? The initiator of of the war? Yeah. The initiator of going to school. Yeah, it's the Anglophones that initiated the war. They are the people that initiated the war, that they want to secede from the Francophone section, that they don't want to join the country any longer. The one that they should separate the country. Let Anglophones go their own side and let the Francophones stay. But you can't say that you want to separate with somebody and all your... All your people are going back to that area that you say oh, you don't want to join with them. You cannot be fighting a war that you are not protecting your your people. You are not protecting the people that you say you want to protect them. And people, they are killing people every day. They say if you send your child to school, they will come and kill you. If you send your child to school, they will kill the army, they will they will kill you also. So the people are escaping their lives and going to the Francophone area. So it's a terrible war that they are fighting in Cameroon. I think in war you have to protect 
your inhabitants, you protect those who are under you. You fight with the army. But our own is a reverse. They don't want children to go to school. They don't want parents. They keep giving a ghost town. They call it ghost town. For weeks, people will remain indoors, in the house. You don't even have to open your house and go even out of the house to fetch water. You will not have to go to the stream to wash even your dresses. You go to wash dresses, the Amazonian soldiers will come and hold you. They will beat you very well. So I don't, it's really terrible in the Anglophone area. It's, it's really terrible, my, my, my brethren. It's terrible, terrible situation. Tell you. So you have your family's problem being split up. You got children not going to school. So to the outside world, what could they do? Give me, give us some ideas. How can we help you? How can we assist you? How can the world um, assist, assist the situation in Cameroon to make it better? What would be some of your recommendations today? Um, what I know, to my own thinking is, I don't know, meeting our government and having dialogue with our government, giving the government the idea or the knowledge on how they can solve this matter. Because I don't know what I can do. And the government has really struggled for children to go back to school. But the Anglophone soldiers don't want that. The children should go back to school, or whom they call themselves that they are Amazonian fighters. Um, the second thing is how to help some of these people because they are, they are carrying their things like that. They don't even know where to stay. I saw some of them just staying in the park with their luggages. Others were going, carrying their things away. They were just stuck there. They didn't even know where to do, where to go. Some of the children, all the people cannot run. There are some few of them, they have just the transport to run away, but they don't have money to rent a house and even enter. They will not even have money to pay school fees for the children to even go to school. Because in Yaoundé, where I saw them, the schools are very expensive and the schools are full. They are full. You go to the classes, you see one small bench ladder that two, two children used to sit. You see about four children sitting there. Even to write is difficult. Then when you go back to the Anglophone area, you see that some of the children are not even going to school. They uh, cannot even cross because they don't have the means even to leave the place. I, I guess today I was talking to, with one of my neighbor, my closest neighbor. I asked, I asked, and they told me he is there. He's a young man with a wife and the children. That all of them are there. I've struggled. My children left yesterday. My three children left yesterday because if they stay till today, they will not leave the Anglophone area again. So. They left yesterday to go somewhere that I've arranged so that they can stay there and start school in September. 
So tell me, somebody who does not have, it's not only that my neighbor alone. There are so many of them. He has five children. You go to some people, they'll be having about six children. Some will have four. If you don't have somebody in the La Republic area, uh, uh, regions, if you don't have even somebody that can direct you, if you don't have transport, that you will carry a family and run. Where will you go with the family? It's a terrible situation. I don't know how we can solve it. I don't know. We have struggled. We have held meetings with the people. We have gone up and down. I was sending you news, sending you pictures of what was going on. We thought that the matter would be solved, that by this time, the children will have to go to school. Peace will return. But there is no peace. There is no peace. Oh my God. Sidley, I know that you have been in the forefront of trying to be a servant to your people. You have a woman organization that particularly emphasizes women empowerment. Just talk a little bit about your organization and what can people do in terms of trying to help to send you resources that could help you. Talk a little bit about the organization and how can they get in touch with you and your organization. Oh, we are struggling with the organization. I think uh, even last month we were trying to see what we can do. We are trying to come up with our active uh, action plan, five years development plan on, on the activities that we have to do for five years. And one of it was the education of the displaced uh, children. Uh, what I want to say that if somebody wants to help us, uh, we have our bank account number. We also have our email. Uh, we have our phone number that we can be reached at uh, plus two three seven. Six seven seven three three two one four five. And your email email address uh, is uh, Naya Selim at yahoo dot co dot uk. Naya Selim at yahoo. Naya Selim, so there'll be no confusion. Go ahead. N E R N A. Y A H Selin C E L I N E at Yahoo dot C O dot U K. Okay, Selin, and to listen to the audience, um, you just heard a brief update on what's going on in Cameroon. Uh, people are in a crisis. Uh, and we need to find some kind of way how can we resolve these issues throughout the continent. But if you can help our sisters, please contact her and do what you can. What we're going to do right now, we're going to have to have a station break, and when we come back, we're going to have to close out with our final thoughts. You are listen to Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
that have the mind to help the needy, then I'm just pleading that people could give a helping hand. We need your prayers. We need your spiritual support. We need your material support. We need your social support. We need your financial support. We need any type of support that anybody can give to solve the situation as is in the Cameroon because the government has tried what they can do to solve this problem. It's not going. And what the Amazonians want is that they should separate. But you know, two people to separate is not an easy thing. You just stay in your house one day and your son or your daughter will just get up and say, I'm no more staying in this house again. I want to go. I want to go. It's always very difficult. So we need your support, all-round support. We need your support. That's what we, we need. That's our need. It's not a want, but it's a need. I want to thank you my people so much, our friends, our sisters, our brothers over there, everywhere in the whole world who are listening to me, to my voice this evening, that we are really in trouble and we need help. We need help. Thank you people for receiving me this evening. Thank you, people, for the time that we have been together for this year that we have been discussing together. I pray that all your discussions that you are fighting for Africa, God will continue to empower you, to supply your needs, to protect you, to give you more wisdom on what to do for Mother Africa and the suffering children. Thank you. Brother Lee, Papa, for the book talk radio. It has really helped us a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Celine. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes. um, It's important that we look to ourselves and we get organized. And we must teach our people, especially our youth, our true history. And it's important that we join an organization that is working for Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, because that is the only solution that will uh, solve all the problems facing Africans throughout the world. To learn more about this solution, visit our website, wwwa a prp-gc.org for more information about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, a couple of things. First, uh, African Awareness, we're doing a solitary tour to Cuba. Uh, that trip takes place October 31st and November 6th. For more information, give us a call, 804 549 7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, 
number two at gmail.com. We encourage, you know, one and all to come and make a trip to Cuba uh, and see what Cuba's all about. I'm sure you'll learn a great deal. You have an opportunity to actually discuss, um, you know, uh, policy, you know, with the Cuban people. And the Cuban people are very, very open. And one thing about the Cuban is they all they all extremely intelligent. So I'm, I'm very, very impressed in terms of the, the country's ability in terms of educating its people. So they don't have a problem in terms of discourse. They discuss with you anything you want to discuss. They're more free to talk about what's going on in society than we are right here in America. Now, the thing is, I, in my closing statement, Brother Africa, I, I think that, you know, listen to Sister Celine, as I listen to the sister, you know, uh, you know, she sort of underscores, you know, the, uh, the, the, the serious challenge that we as a people we're confronted with. And this, this problem that we're confronted with is global. Uh, we need organization. Uh, we, we need it desperately. Uh, in the context of America, uh, you know, even though there are those of us who believe that we got it good here. The reality is that the situation for many African people in this country is very, very precarious, and we need organization. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that when you stop and think about in terms of the International Monetary Fund, uh, talking about the uh, fertility of the economy, we talk about the real problems of fertility with the U.S. economy, and then superpose upon that a, a, a central bank of uh, Bank of England uh, official talks about uh, the real problems affiliated, you know, with the U.S. hegemony in terms of the economics uh, of the world. And clearly, it gives us an indication just how precarious the system is. And one thing we have to understand: as the system, you know, falls, then we get to understand very, very clearly that someone has to be the scapegoat. I think that by this point, I'm thinking that perhaps most people already understand that the scapegoats are going to be African people. We have to understand that fully. So we've got some challenges ahead of us, but we have to have those institutions in terms of being able to really deconstruct, really look at, and really analyze, you know, these, cha- these, these challenges that we're confronted with. But in closing, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix, uh, because without unraveling of the matrix, there's no way conceivable, you know, um, to form a path, um, where, you know, to minimize the amount of suffering and, um, and, and deaths. Uh, that uh, that's going to exist as a result of um, the unraveling of this system. So I encourage people to get busy about building institutions. And Brother Africa, of course, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience, we thank you for allowing us to come to your homes this evening to speak truth to power. And we encourage you to heed the call. Mother Africa, one of your daughters, have made a call out to you. She needs your help out of Cameroon. Whatever you can do or whatever you want to do, and you want to make sure you communicate with your sister, you can always write us at this radio station, which is email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com, and we will put you in touch with the sister. Like always, the only solution we have is Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism is the solution to resolving the problems of African people around the world. But in order to do that and arrive at that particular objective, we must get organized. So we come and tell you, if you love Africa, want to help Africa, want to help African people, we want to help humanity, the key is getting organized. So brothers and sisters, let's get organized. And on that note, we look forward to coming to your home next Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
U.S. And let's continue to strive to go forward, Apple, backwards from Apple. You've been listening to Africa on the Moon. Now, take you back to homeland, to Mother Africa. Come on. 
That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and love. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mossadegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Got the strip was getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck who's cutting, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan help a ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the sky, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago 
mama didn't say shoot O-B-A-M-A You ain't fooling everyone I see the games you play You P-I-P I P-I-C And we know that's the code name for C-I-A Ay, ay The same way your cameras are watching us We're watching you Think we're easy to control You ain't got a clue Revolution's on the way Let's see what you're gonna do You're gonna send the truth You're gonna drop the news See it's not where you're from It's where you're at You're sitting in the white hat So who cares if you're black If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom, Palestine.
Yeah. 
Check out you up there. Yeah. Check yeah. out yeah. you up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, not true, I won't talk again, you. Not true, I won't talk again, you. If I delay you, you could still punish me. If I punish me, you could do more punish me. If I could do punish me, you could do more punish me. I'll read down for book you. I see some myself for you. Well, well, you. Shanti Ladi 